0: we know from the scriptures that if people reject the Lord, they won't believe in nothing, as G.K. Chesterton said, they'll believe in anything above all idols. So we have no fear, put it this way, it sounds rather crass, no fear for religion. People will always be religious, even in the secularist age. But the alternative religions are disastrous, and that's the problem.
1: Welcome to The Follower Podcast, a place for conversations about following Jesus to the depths of His heart and the ends of the earth. My name is Matthew Lewis, and I am so glad that you are here. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Follower Podcast. As you know, I've been around for a while. Over the last while, it's been developing into a small group of friends who are really just seeking the heart of Jesus and trying to figure out uh, how do we follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and to the ends of the earth together and one of those friends is a lady called Judy Shaw hello Judy hello (laughs) and uh, Judy uh, originally in Belfast Yes, Judy. Yes, yes. But We're currently working us. in London. Yeah, it's great. And Judy and Judy's like jumped onto the follower team, and really, she's heading up research. So she tries to make sure that the things we say actually make sense and, <laughs> and are true. Yeah, new new
2: press riddle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And
1: then and then she does a lot of uh, just connecting with guests and and uh, bringing in different voices into the space, so that it's really really helpful. So you'll probably be hearing Judy's voice and other voices on the podcast in the coming episodes so you can look forward to that and uh, for this episode Judy you've brought along one of your friends would you go ahead and introduce who we have yes on the show today?
2: and an honor to call my friend as well we have with us the wonderful Oz Guinness if you haven't heard of Oz before, you should definitely get reading some of his books. Oz is a social critic and renowned Christian author and speaker. He's written many books, including The Call, which is about finding, fulfilling the central purpose of your life. And More recently, he has written a book entitled Carpe Diamond, Redeemed, Seizing the Day, Discerning the Times. Um, Oz, we are so excited to have you with us. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself.
0: Well, thank you, Judy. Thank you, Matt. It's a real privilege to be with you. I've heard of follow, and I'm delighted to be able to join you.
2: Oz, wonderful fact about yourself is that you are the great, great, great grandson, I believe, of Arthur Guinness. So you're Irish. Is that correct?
0: Uh, Indeed. Very proud to be Irish (laughs) and very proud to be a Guinness. My eminent ancestor was a follower too. He came to faith through the preaching of John Wesley and uh, copied Wesley's principle, earn all you can save all you can, and the third one, give all you can. So I'm glad that that's been at the heart of our family ever since.
1: Yeah, good Can, can I jump in here? Uh, Arthur, I, I was very privileged to be, uh, not Arthur, I was, I was actually in Dublin and I went to the Guinness factory and it, it blew my mind that so much of what happens through the work of Guinness actually funds missions. I, I didn't know that at all. Could you speak a little bit to that?
0: Well, there's been one side of the family that have kept the faith ever since. I mean, Arthur Guinness, in the 18th century, founded the first Sunday school in Ireland. And that was the beginning of a line of things they did. So the more important was, though, the company. Mm-hmm. He always paid above average. He brought in things like education and health care, all sorts of amenities that only some of the other Christian corporations like Cadbury's and Fry's in England did at the time. So I'm glad they really cared for the workers and for the poor. But there's also been a strong strain of philanthropy and all sorts of causes And my side of the family. My grandfather went as a missionary to China, and so I have a strong missionary streak in the family, too.
2: Oz, thank you so much for that. That was a fascinating history to hear. Tell us about the last book
0: that you wrote, Oz, and how you wrote it. Well, my current book is The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Because clearly we're at a civilizational moment, as historians put it. 500 years Of Western dominance, not actually very long, but 500 years, and the Christian faith has been the single strongest influence in the West, along with what we owe to the Greeks and what we owe to the Romans. But today, the roots of the Christian faith have been undermined and cut. So Europe, and increasingly the United States, and the other English-speaking parts of the world, like Canada, Australia, and so on, are cut-flower civilizations. So we're towards the end of European Western Christian dominance, for better or worse, unless there's a reawakening.
2: Great. And that leads us really um, quickly onto the topic we want to talk about today. So, Matt, do you want to unpack what we're going to be speaking about?
1: Yeah, and I think I'll, you know, draw off some of what you're talking about there, Oz, and um, at least in South Africa, this is true. I think it's probably true in some of what we're talking about in the post-Christian moment of our culture uh, is that, you know, I think it's Mark Sayers who talks about sort of the progression of Christian a thought is that there was a time when Christianity was applauded, even aspired to, you were thought to be moral and righteous as a Christian person. Then it kind of moved to a place where it was tolerated or looked down or like you were okay, but not necessarily the hero of the story. And now we're almost moving to a place where it's, there's an antagonistic sentiment against Christianity in a lot of ways. And so there's been this progression of thought, And when you talk about um, this 500 year period of time and starting to come to the end of things, I guess my question that comes off the back of that is, uh, what exactly are we coming to the end of? <laughs> so, what I mean by that is it's very often that Christianity and culture, these things come together. What are we losing? Why, why are we in this post-Christian moment? What are people reacting against? Does that make
0: sense? Yes. Now, what you said is undoubtedly true, uh, the way people are attacking the faith and that comes out of what we'll come to that a little later, some of the alternatives that are strong today. But if you look at the cut flower civilization, as I talked to it, one of the features is not only a decline of faith. One of the features is nostalgia for the faith from some of the leading intellectuals. And you can think of books like Tom Holland's Dominion. Or, um, you know, um, be, be people from all around the place who realize the Christian faith added so much that we're now beginning to lose. So, you take notions like human rights, or a high view of truth, or a strong view of freedom, or a powerful view of justice and of reforms, and so all these things are the gifts not only of the gospel, but of the Bible. So the very best of the West comes, well, some of it I said from the Greeks, but the best of it comes from the scriptures. We are a product of a biblical civilization. Mm -hmm. In my book, I argue that the American Revolution, for example, at its best came out through the Reformation of the Sinai Revolution. The great mistake of the early church was to copy Roman structures and institutions, and Roman structures were hierarchical, and they produced a hierarchical church, which was corrupt in its power, and it was a Catholic layman, Lord Acton, who made the famous remark, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when he said that, writing, he was referring to his own church, the Catholic Church, which copied Roman structures wrongly. And the Reformation, thank God, went back to the Bible, Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Knox, and rediscovered covenant and covenantal structures are quite different. And that gave rise to a huge amount of modern freedom. But even that's being rejected now in the light of some of the movements that are current.
2: As said this great quote there, we're a product of a biblical civilization. And yet we see this lingering reality of religious zeal all around us. Um, and when we read the Psalms, or we look at Romans 1. It seems that the Bible does support that we, by nature, are worshippers, whether it's worshipping God or something else. What does this religious zeal, whether it's politicized or it's ideology, or does it tell us about ourselves as human beings, do you think?
0: Well, there's a lot written about secularization. And so for 200 years, the secularization theory, put simply, the idea the more modern we get, the less religious we become. And you can see that with Auguste Comte and Max Weber and Bertrand Russell and many, many other thinkers and writers right now like Ronald Engelhardt. But that is actually wrong. Because, as you said, we know from the Scriptures that if people reject the Lord, they won't believe in nothing, as G.K. Chesterton said. They'll believe in anything above all idols. So we have no fear, put it this way, it sounds rather crass, no fear for religion. People will always be religious, even in the secularist age. But the alternative religions are disastrous, and that's the problem. Now we've got to begin, though, I think, and we sort of skipped it, we've got to begin by looking at our contribution to our own rejection.
1: This is key. This is so. In other so, words,
0: secularism key. is both a parasite on our best and a protest against our worst. It's taken over many of our beliefs, say progress. And now we do it through reason and science rather than the Lord taken over much of our best and it's parasitic on it, but it's a protest. And this is the point I'm making against our worst. So you can see three impulses behind modern secularism. One, we don't want God. Two, we don't need God. And three, we can replace God. Mm. Now, we've got to come to terms with the first one, which is the deepest. And you can see it most clearly in the French Revolution. You know what uh, Denis Diderot said became the cry of the Jacobin. We will never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. In other words, in France, church and state, throne and altar were one. They were one, and oppressive and corrupt. And the revolution threw off both church and state and became what the French call laïcité, strictly secularist. Now that has spread. You take Ireland, Judy, the reaction against the horrors of the Catholic orphanages. Or in Canada, it's the reaction against the treatment of the indigenous people. Or in South Africa, Matt, it's the reactions against apartheid. And here in America, where I'm living currently, although I'm not American, it's the reaction against some of the extremes of the religious right. In other words, much of the problem of secularism is us.
2: Mm -hmm. Corrupt
0: forms of the faith have bred a reaction. Now, that's only the first. We don't need God. We could go and look at the other two if you want, but we've got to come to terms with our own contribution to our rejection because we have to start and say, Lord, forgive us. We have let right. you down. Could I tease this out a
1: little bit, just for our audience? Because, you know, we've got a broad audience and some people are going to be tracking, other people are very much not. So I'm trying to, I want to, because it's such an important idea, what you're unpacking right now. Um, what I'm hearing you say is that, uh, as an example, in South Africa, there is this idea that, that Jesus is the white man's religion in a lot of our, of our community, and there is the story of people will use the analogy, they'll say, you know, missionaries came to South Africa with the Bible and we had a land, had the land, then we closed our eyes to pray and they had the land and we had the Bible, you know? And um, unfortunately, although that's, there's more nuance to it than that, that's not, Completely untrue in a lot of ways, and so as a result, people are re- reacting to what you're saying the worst of us and throwing out God. Is that, is that what you're saying? And, and then how does this link to this cut flower civilization you're referring to?:
0: Well, what you're saying is absolutely true, but a lot of it is extreme because it comes out of the critique of anti-colonialism or cultural Marxism, whatever like. We can talk about that too. So, you know, my parents are missionaries. They were missionaries and missionaries. Now, the simple fact is, as the better scholarship now shows, that wherever you have evangelical missionaries whose heart was for the gospel and the people they were serving, you actually have, say, in many parts of China, the seeds of health care and the seeds of education and much of the best that's come out of the missionary movement. And there's no question that when you look at the West of the whole human rights, you think of people like Bartolome de las Casas or William Wilberforce and many others like that. William Carey in India, the very best of freedom, justice, human dignity came out of the Christian faith and the scriptures. And so it's true that we can look at the corrupt forms, but that was not the whole story. Mm. And so cultural Marxism, the radical left, makes it the whole story. Right. And let's remember, we can get into that, Man, Their revolution has never succeeded. Mm. And the oppression of the radical left has never eased off. I was mm. born in China, as you know. I was a witness to the Chinese revolution. For two years, I was there during the reign of terror as a boy And I will be always unflinchingly open-eyed about what Marxism, either classical or cultural, means. So, yes, I began by saying we've got to confess where we've been wrong because we have helped create our opposition. But that is only half the story, in fact, not even half, and we've got to be pretty clear-eyed about the alternatives, Fantastic.
1: And then I'm still trying to understand what you're talking about with this cut flower civilization. So how does that feed into that idea?
0: Well, take something like um, human dignity. The high view of human dignity, the grounding of human rights comes from the Genesis declaration that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. Nowhere else. If you look at modern atheism, are we the product of selfish genes or are we simply tool makers or the naked ape, Desmond Morris, and so on? In other words, atheism defines humanity downwards, always in light of our animal nature and so on. The Bible defines us upwards. We are like the unlike. In other words, in the scriptures, God always prohibits images. Nothing on the earth, no animal, no part of nature like the sun, none of those can ever be an image of the Lord. But with that incredible prohibition from the beginning of the Bible to the end, there is one thing in the cosmos that is the image of the invisible God, and that is humanity. Now, of course, you could come on down to the incarnation which is even more amazing that God became one of us. But we've got to see that the highest view of humanity is rooted in the Bible, in Genesis 1, and the Mm -hmm. whole of the Scriptures. Now, without that, here's the cut flower, Matt. There is no view for grounding. So I would say we've got to watch out. We are not only in a post-truth world. Think of the Economist headline. We are sadly increasingly in a post-rights world. Mm. In other words, take the Universal Declaration, 1948. The architect of that was a Christian. And now that we cut the roots of the faith, there is no grounds for human beings being of such high worth. We are in a post-rights age. And many of those fighting for human rights have no grounds for the cries which they're making. Mm. I'm I genuinely I'm trying to help myself
1: and the audience okay so what I'm hearing you say with this cut flower analogy because I think this is a profound thought is that uh, if we imagine a field of flowers we look at all these flowers and we go this is beautiful so we love the fruits of a of a biblical assumption basically uh, for example human beings have value in Margot Day. so we look at that and we go those are beautiful things now what the secular narrative has tried to do is um, get the fruit or the flower without the root, which is the belief. And so what they're struggling to do is keep flowers alive without an ecosystem that
0: actually makes flowers live. Is that what he's are saying? Yeah. There is okay. a moral, spiritual ecology. Yes, Put it another way. You know, Rabbi Sachs used to say, we talk a lot about the climate change, but the real problem of the world, he said, is cultural climate change. So philosophical cynicism, no truth, etc., has led to moral corruption. We can no longer say things are right and wrong, which leads eventually to social collapse. Mm. The ties that are binding families and societies are eroding. So this is actually incredibly serious. Now, I mentioned human dignity. Take another one, Matt. Take a simple one. Words. In the scriptures... Words created the world. And you can see in the Bible that words can create worlds. Words can destroy worlds. So in the Old Testament, I'm deliberately referring to the old, not just the new. In the Old Testament, there's a notion of evil speech, which the rabbis think is tantamount to murder. Hmm. Now, you think of our world, say, social media. We have cheapened words beyond recognition. And now we're weaponizing words. Wow. So even Christians are using words casually in the so-called culture wars and so on. And we've got to realize that words in the scripture are powerful and they're precious. And it, we respect words. So our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. And we always speak with regard to truth and with respect for a human made in the image of God that we're talking to. Mm. even if they've treated us abominably. So not only a a huge thing like human dignity, but a relatively simple thing like words, which we use every moment. There's a biblical view, which is powerful and dynamic.
1: Goodness. That's very helpful. Thank you. Mm. And so is it any wonder that when we look around at our society at the moment, we see all the flowers dying you know, because we've cut them off from the roots. So, of course, yeah, that makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense. Judy, did you have a thought there?
2: I, My question got answered beautifully. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, fellas. Um, no, I think it would be helpful then to move on. You, you finished that last point really well in, in biblical view. I really want to get into that. So, Matt, you actually had a great story that you told us as a group of friends about Dallas Willard, about why Jesus. So, mm-hmm. you want to tell us that before we get on to the
1: next point? Yeah, so um, Dallas tells a story in one of his books. Uh, those of you who know Dallas Willard, you've definitely heard his name if you've been listening to this podcast any amount of time. Uh, Dallas is, uh, was a philosopher and uh, a lecturer in philosophy. And uh, one day, one of his students, I think he, I think it was a master student or I I'm not sure, but one of his students came to him and said, uh, Dallas, you like this very educated man. You're very intelligent. You seem to know a lot and read a lot. So why, with all your education and insights, why do you follow Jesus? And Dallas looked at the student and his response was simply, well, who else do you have in mind? <laughs> and uh, that's such a good response. And what it, what it, how it lands for me in this moment, this cultural moment, and what you're referring to, Oz, and what we've been speaking about as a group, Judy, is um, it's exactly what you, you have. This, this flower picture is beautiful, Oz. This idea that you know we've we've killed the ecosystem, the flowers are dying. But now this, uh, we have no fear of losing religion. We must attach to a religious impulse. And a lot of the time, when people think religion, they think Buddhism or they think Islam or the classics. But actually, Marxism, as you've described, has a religious impulse. So we, because we're meaning machines, we attach to this. And I, I guess the question is, in the midst of all this. Why Jesus? Why does he stand above them all as the place where we should go with that longing?
0: Well, Matt, Dallas is a great friend of mine, and I loved him, and he's a great loss with his going, mm. a remarkable, remarkable man. Mm. But one of the areas where we used to work together, and I spoke with him at Stanford and other universities as well as working together on the Trinity Forum, we both believed that if you look at the worldviews, the faiths, the philosophies, the religions, call it what you like, you boil them down to three great families of faiths. The Eastern, Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age movements. The secularist, atheism, agnosticism, materialism, naturalism, scientism, and then, of course, the Abrahamic. And above all in the West, Judaism, and the Christian faith, they are radically different. And so it's not just thinking of Jesus alone, but you start with the big families of faith. And rather than question, take, say, what we've just talked about, human dignity, you cannot find it in the Eastern family. And increasingly it's been undermined in the secularist family because they were parasitic on the Christian view, but they realized you can't be now and so on. It's only in the third family, the Abrahamic, that you have a high view of human dignity. And the same is true of almost any issue. Run them through the grid, the pattern, the worldviews of the big families of faiths, and you see there's no answer. Now, of course, our wonderful Jewish friends, on many of these issues, we overlap, such as human dignity. But obviously the significance of our Lord is that he's the fulfillment of all of previous Judaism, all the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew scriptures. He's the fulfillment of it for humanity. Mm. In other words, Judaism has these wonderful truths, but in a particular form that often was exclusive to Jews. Whereas even the great British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli said, the Christian faith is Judaism for the multitudes. In other words, Judaism for the whole world. So, yes, who do you think apart from our Lord? But many younger Christians have got to remember when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the whole of the scripture. So, there's a dreadful situation in America where a megachurch pastor called for the Unhitching of the Old Testament from the New. That's dreadful. Mm. Jesus was Jewish and he was predicted by the prophets, say Isaiah 61. And when he announces himself in the early chapters of Luke, it's in terms of Isaiah 61. And he brings good news and freedom and justice for the world. And of course, he stands in the line as the son of God of all that we see in the old Testament. So yes, no one else, but Jesus, but from the whole of the scriptures and not just the new. Mm.
1: And so I was uh, Judy, did you have a question? I'm, I'm aware that I can dominate you. Not even for it. So in light of that, right. So I'm a Christian person. I'm a follower of Jesus uh, in the craziness. That is our world at the moment. I want to preach the gospel to someone today. Uh, classically, in a lot of, particularly from evangelical backgrounds, that's looked something like a sinner's prayer or a transaction here or something there. If you had to, I guess, coach someone through the good news that we carry to the world in the person of Jesus, how would you frame that at this in this moment?
0: Well, Matt, there's a number of the whole issues we haven't had time to look at. I was looking at some of our contributions to our own rejection. We need to look at, too, the opposition. And then thirdly, we need to look at the way the modern world has shaped Christians, nothing to do with ideas at all, without our being aware of it. But you're right. At a certain point, we've got to get off the (laughs) the back foot and defensive and come out with the good news. Mm. Now, always, though, we've got to start because we love people. By listening to them. now was everyone's different. So we're talking to someone in Asia or Africa or Latin America or Europe. We've got to talk to a young person or an old person or an atheist or a Muslim. We've got to love and listen and discover what I call, based on our Lord, the treasure of their heart. Mm. What makes them tick in life? The most powerful hope, dream. Purpose and so on. Now, that's what we're speaking to. And of course, we'll tailor our understanding of the good news to that. Now, you almost put it, you weren't cynical, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people could ask your question in a cynical way, as if evangelicalism is a very simplistic thing of give me your heart. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of rejection of that now with all the sophistication and concerns for justice. But remember, the final freedom. Is the freedom of the heart. Right. And so freedom of conscience is external. Freedom of speech is external. The freedom of the heart is the heart of freedom. Mm. So the simple old evangelical idea of Jesus knocking on the door, which is of course biblical, is right. And we've got to understand an understanding of freedom that is as deep as beginning with the freedom of the heart as the heart of freedom. So never despise, give me your heart. Mm. The sinner's and, prayer is actually right. And I, I so think, we, but the, my no. point is, we've got, we've got to look at some of these things and unpack them. So take confession. You mentioned the sinner's prayer. Easy to be cynical about that again. You weren't, but many are. I always remember Michel Foucault. There is a postmodern thinker, atheist who hated the gospel, died of AIDS after catching it in a San Francisco bathhouse. Sad story. But once, he said, the one part of the Christian faith he admired, confession. I picked up my ears. What was he talking about? He said, when someone confesses voluntarily, not a coerced confession, It's very rare morally because a person is, quote, going on record against themselves. That's incredibly rare. We put our best foot forward. I'll blame someone else. Anything but have to say, I screwed it up. I sinned. I lied. I committed adultery. But, of course, that's biblical. We go on record against ourselves. So the sinner's prayer, incredibly important. At a certain point, we've got to go on record before the Lord. We were wrong. We need your forgiveness. Mm. Judy, do you have a thought?
2: I, yeah, I actually think for our followers, could you unpack us what the sinner's prayer is, just in case anybody's wondering what that really means? Well, it'll be
0: different according to the different people you're talking about. Some people will have to confess the pride that thought they could play God in their own lives, and they realize they're too small to do that. Some people may have screwed it up totally in, say, adultery, which ruined a whole family, and have to say, Lord, forgive me for that. But it's different in every case. In other words, each of us has to come as we are and confess all the wrongs, because the point is we can't find the Lord without the Lord. That's why we need revelation. And we can't satisfy the Lord without the Lord. That's why we need the cross. But we need to confess all those things in our lives, which should be different in every different person, that has stopped us getting there. And now we're putting those on the table and saying, Lord, I've totally screwed it up. I need you. But that will be different for different people. I'd urge both of you, let's add a dimension of the discussion. You talked about the water. What is it we're facing? It isn't just the church has screwed it up. We have. Lord, forgive us. Much of the problem of the church in the West is the church, not you. We've let down the Lord. But we've also got to size up the challenges. And I put put it in three different colors. We are now facing a red wave, a black wave, and a rainbow-colored wave. Mm. The red wave is cultural and classical Marxism. In the West, it's cultural Marxism. And many people have not really understood how that comes from Antonio Gramsci, the Frankfurt School, the Long March through the Institutions. And so we have this whole paraphernalia of the radical left. You, You almost quoted at the beginning, Max, and that we've got to understand that. And really see where it differs from the gospel. Take justice. A lot of American pastors have drunk the Kool-Aid because the left says, "Mark a justice," they leap and salute, not realizing the less view of justice are totally different from the biblical view of justice. That's the red wave. Then, of course, in the wider world, you have the black wave. If you think of 1979 and the Iranian Revolution. And the way the Ayatollah and his success has set off a stream of Islam, Islamic radicalism around the world, Al-Qaeda right down to ISK this year, you know, in different countries, Nigeria and so on. This is extremely powerful and directly anti-Christian. And then, of course, the third wave, the rainbow wave. Many people don't realize that the sexual revolution It is much deeper than Hugh Hefner and Playboy and the pill. It goes back to the same quarter in Paris, the Palais Royal, that the French Revolution came from. And if you know the architects of the uh, sexual revolution, Marquis de Sade and people like uh, Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s, they are deliberately out to subvert 3,000 years of Western civilization. And Reich says quite openly, we have two enemies we need to overcome. One, parents. That's why you want to sideline parents at the age of three and four through sex education. But the more important enemy, the church. Ooh. So we got to see that the red wave, the black wave, and the rainbow wave are all explicitly. Hostile to our faith, and we need to understand them to combat them and not, yes, we'll admit where we've been wrong. I began there. But we've got to be very clear how the gospel is different from them. Because as I said to Matt, the revolutions never succeed and the oppression never ends. And we're followers of the good news, the ultimate revolution. You know, I love the fact if you go back to the English Revolution, 1642. That was where the notion of revolution was biblical. And you know the very simple idea. God creates order. Humans create disorder. So God acts into the disorder to turn it upside down, to turn the world the right way up. And that's why you think of Acts 17, when the Agitators say about Paul, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. Paul had not turned the world upside down. He turned it the right way up, and properly understood the gospel is the true revolution, returning the world to the way it should be.
1: Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. And so, just yes. to to tease us out again for our audience, um, in in the simpler terms, if you're struggling with some of what Oz is saying. Um, It is this idea of water. And again, some of us, uh, so for example, I'm thinking about some of my friends who are listening to this podcast. You may have zero understanding of Marxism. You may have zero understanding of the French Revolution, the sexual revolution, and all these things that are rooted. But what you need to know is that you know when you scroll your TikTok feed or you scroll your Instagram feed, everything you do is doing something to you. Okay. And these things, they are not neutral. They are animated by ideas, perspectives, stances. And what Oz is pointing out, intentions. They actually are intentionally trying to achieve an end in your life. And if you don't believe that, simply look around at the state of our culture at the moment and ask yourself, how did we get here? (laughs) Did we just stumble into this thing? It's not. There's an intentionality behind this because ideas breed worlds okay and so everything that you're doing is doing something to you and all that Oz is helping us do is it take us to a, a higher level of thinking and help us understand that this is not, this is not uh, fake news friends. <laughs> this is not uh, this is not conspiracy theory. Actually, this is rooted in history and th- not all of this stuff is as innocent as you may think it is. A lot of stuff is loaded with agenda.
0: Would you agree with that? Oz, what I'm saying? No, absolutely. Yeah. But Matt, you're raising another dimension. We haven't got into either. We're talking about culture, you talk about the water we're swimming in. The Bible talks about the world, and we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Or St. Augustine said, we're members of the city of God, although we're living in the city of man. Now, that means we not only analyze the ideas of our times, which you've mentioned well, we've got to look at the the world of our times, some of which doesn't come from ideas. Let me give you an example. The weakness of the Western Church, I don't know about South Africa, we have shifted in much of the West from a stance in authority to preference. Jesus is Lord. That means we're under his authority. He put his stamp on the scriptures. That's our authority, the Bible. But in the Western world, we're in a consumer culture. Now you go to a supermarket, there are a hundred cereals and granolas you might choose from. Everything's a matter of your choice, your preference. Now that idea of a consumer society is in our minds and it grows into everything. So in America, you have mega churches where you have five styles of music. Do you want traditional music, contemporary music, jazz? You choose your worship service. So everything's a matter of your choice. And then you come to the scriptures. You choose the new rather than the old. One man said to me, of course, I'll put love on my plate. But then he said, but hell? Hell no. Mm. As we pick and choose. So the Western church is feeble. It's lost authority, not because we've caved into liberal theology, although some have. It's because we've been affected by consumerism. And so we're in the world but not of the world. We've constantly got to be analyzing the world because you Can't resist it unless you recognize it. Mm,
1: mm, mm, mm. Brilliant. And I think this is where, you know, we were talking earlier about the sinner's prayer and I wanted to come back around to that. Uh, I'm glad it didn't come across cynical. Uh, I do. I I think for me, the the importance is in the emphasis and the nuance of it. So for me, I would go back to just good old biblical repentance. Like when I see in the book of Acts and in the preaching of the gospel, there is no salvation without repentance, and I think that's what you're speaking to. I think part of my concern around sometimes how we how we frame the sinner's prayer is that the language is very often exactly what you're saying, inviting Jesus into my heart, which turns Jesus into some kind of, consu- like a product I can consume, instead of what I think you're trying to highlight is that actually we're invited into the heart of Jesus. And so, it is a renovation of the heart, but it's not a privatization of that Jesus, it's that I get invited into a bigger story, and that is the salvation that you're talking about. Uh, would you agree or disagree? Thoughts on that?
0: Oh, absolutely. And the key word what you're saying there is privatized. Mm. In other words, it's privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. Mm. Whereas Jesus's lordship and the whole of the Bible speaks to the whole of life. Yeah, I true. mentioned earlier the Catholics made a bad mistake around 380, when the Christian faith was declared to be the official religion of Rome, the Catholic Church copied Roman structures, and they were hierarchical, not biblical. But evangelicals have made a great mistake. The Reformation rediscovered the Old Testament, and in England and Scotland and Holland and other places, and above all America, it was made social and political. It wasn't just personal and spiritual. But evangelicals have read the book of Exodus. So Exodus, yes, all about freedom. But it's a forerunner of my salvation, Mm. your salvation, our salvation personally. Nonsense. That notion of covenant is a social, political idea. And there's dynamite there. That's what my current book's about. And you you take ideas that are there. Exodus has the consent of the governed. Exodus has the notion of the separation of powers. All these things that in the 17th century were explosive in giving us modern democracy and freedom, they came from the Bible. Mm. You know, I like to tell Americans, as an Englishman living here, the most famous American statement on democracy, you probably know, Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, he said, democracy is the government of the people, by the people, for the people. And they quote Lincoln. But most Americans don't know Lincoln was quoting. Do you know who he was quoting? John Wycliffe. Okay. And in the 14th century, Wycliffe said, when ordinary people have the Bible, no, it's not just the priests. When ordinary people have the Bible and can read it and follow it, then you have the possibility... Of government, of the people, by the people, for the people. Mm. Now, as the Bible gives you the roots—human dignity, freedom, justice—you name it—for the things that give us free and just societies. So it's not just personal. And mm. if you don't have the roots, then you're cutting the flowers,
1: right? That's it. No, exactly. Come on.
2: Well, as you mentioned there about the church losing authority, and you also mentioned before this word idols. How then can the church today gain authority with these three waves you really helpfully unpacked for us?
0: Well, we first got to be sure that we know the Lord and we're re-exploring the depth and richness of biblical truth and above all truth surrounding our Lord. And then move off the back foot. Most Christians I know and hear are defensive. They've taken on board the criticisms from outside and they've, you know, internalized them and they feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed or whatever. There's a dreadful defensiveness. We need to so know the Lord and be prepared to admit openly where we've been wrong and the church has been wrong, but then get off the back foot and move out. And here's where, in my current book, I argue to Americans that, Sinai is the once and future key to freedom because historically it's the key to the American revolution. But not only that, that's history. It is the best key to the future of humanity. And you won't find views of human dignity, truth, justice, peace, community. Go on down the line that you find in the scriptures. So there's nothing. I mean, look at our world today. Look in the Bible. The bookends of history, you can see it in Genesis, are authoritarianism, all order, no freedom. And the other extreme, anarchy, which is all freedom, no order. From Abraham through Moses, through our Lord, down through the Reformation, you can see the idea of ordered freedom. We're the the heirs of that. Mm. So it's time for Christians. The gospel is good news. I would say it's the best news ever. But not just personally, yes, personally, but socially, politically, communally. We are the champions and defenders of freedom and justice and so on. Time for us to get off the back foot and move out with boldness and with confidence. This is an incredible moment, and the future of humanity is at stake.
1: Mm. And on this, I just want to, you know, the the younger people listening to this, let me, what, what Oz is talking about, my, let me relate to this at a personal level. So, um, George Floyd starts happening. The Black Lives Matter stuff starts exploding. I'm in South Africa. I am a a white male in a nation that has a history of apartheid, right? All of a sudden, there's a conflation of ideas. There's these, there's separate issues. That should be dealt with separately but they get smashed into the same thing and so what Oz has been trying to help us understand is that there are there are culture forming ideas like Marxism that historically have always been problematic grafted into viable and important ideas like racism and these things get smashed together okay so now in South Africa I see this and some red flags start going up around what I start to go. I'm like, I'm sure that that looks like a repetition of something we've seen before in history called Marxism. Okay, And when I start questioning that, it's assumed then that I'm in favor of racism because these things start being pulled together under one idea. And so then this is a common term with us at the moment. I get gaslighted into guilt. I get, I get convinced that I should be guilty for being skeptical about something that I think is problematic. And then instead of moving towards sort of a logical position on things, I end up submitting to an inferior way of actually seeing the world. Uh, so if you're listening to that, that's kind of what I was speaking to. Oz, would you agree with that? How would you unpack some of that?
0: No, no Matt, you put it well. You've described at greater length what I just said. Young Americans have drunk the Kool-Aid. Right. Right. Now, let's let's think, though, historically. Sadly, if you look at human history, slavery is the norm. Abolition and reform are the novelty. And who are the great champions of reform and abolition? Yeah. Christians, Bartolome Las Casas in the 16th century, John Woolman, William Wilberforce, and others in the 18th century. But think again. You know, if we look at human history, it's said that one of the great mysteries is why there is no more outrage against the abuse of power. And when people ask that question, they say the reason is that power is impressive. The spectacle of power is overwhelming. So the greatness of a pharaoh. I mean, King Tut was a minor pharaoh. And look at that incredible opulence he had and the amazing pyramids. If you've ever been to Cairo and so on, power is awesome. The first great voices against the abuse of power are the Hebrew prophets. And the greatest of of Isaiah in chapter 61 prophesies God's servant who's coming who will bring good news and liberate. And our Lord quotes that as he announces his good news. We who are followers, I love your title. (laughs) We who are followers are followers of the liberator. Come on. The one who tackles the abuse of power. So don't listen to the voices of the Marxists and others. We are the champions of the highest view of human dignity And we stand against every form of the abuse of power and truth and words right down to the way we use social media. Mm. So let it be clear. We are the champions and defenders of freedom and justice. And that's why we are the people of the good news. I love the word evangelical. Mm. It's embarrassing for many today. There's so much appalling, shallowness, corruption among certain evangelicals, but the idea Mm. Far more important than Catholic, universal, mm. Mm. far more important than Orthodox, with due respects, <laughs> evangelical <laughs> is the good news of freedom and justice and liberation in Jesus.
2: Really good.
1: Thank Amen. you. Amen. And so I think um, the invitation here, almost to wrap up this thought, if there's one thing I would want you to take away from this conversation with us and thank you again so much for your time it's been really it's been really really helpful is um you need to think <laughs> You need to at think, least. you know, at the at, at least to begin, you need to think about this stuff. And I think there's a tension here, guys, L- really listen to this. Uh, Tim Keller, right, he talks about the, there's a tension between sectarianism and assimilation and how what Jesus, the life of Jesus looks like a cruciform radical middle. Right. And so on one hand, sectarianism is we all just get in our little Christian circle and we just it's us and Jesus and we haven't done anything wrong. And, Oz, I don't know if you would agree, but this kind of, to me, looks like a lot of the Christian nationalism sometimes we're experiencing, which is like just um, unable to embrace its guilt. What would you think about that?
0: <laughs> You're opening a can of worms there. Yeah. I mean, the pro- nationalism is the handy attack word of the scholars and the globalists. Very unfair. Mm-hmm. Remember, those nationalists are actually often patriots mm-hmm. who want to defend their country at his best, over against notions like the New World Order and authoritarian global reset and things like this. So I'm a very proud Irishman. That is not nationalism. (laughs) Nationalism can become an idol. Patriotism is good. And there's a lot of cheap criticism of nationalism, which is actually unfounded, and it's part of the liberal critique of the globalists. George Soros style. So I'm not to There are people who make a, an idol of nations, and that's wrong. Mm. But it, there's a true patriotism, which is good. We should be proud of our local areas. Doesn't mean we don't criticize them when they're wrong, but proud of where we come from and so on. Okay. That's a great comes from Belfast, I think, and I come, my family comes from Dublin and we're yeah. both together. Yeah. Proud of Ireland. Is Ireland Amen. No. <laughs> Amen to
2: that. Was, yeah. Like family. Yeah,
1: absolutely. absolutely. So then yeah. uh, uh, taken, taken point taken. So help me with better language then. So as a Christian person, I see, for example, uh, like the Capitol riot and I see a flag. Jesus is Lord in that context. And something in me goes, no, I think there's been a mixing of ideas here. I think that Jesus has now been made a poster boy for an idea. How would you? What's the language you would use for something like that?
0: Again, you're opening another huge one. But one of the American evangelical problems is the lack of a clear understanding of how to engage public life. So evangelicals have swung between a privatized faith privately engaging, publicly relevant, which was the old problem, and a politicized faith where politics is be all and end all. Now, in fact, January the 6th, I had friends who were there who would say truly, Jesus is Lord, people who are high up in the leadership, say, of the Young Life Movement, who were praying and singing hymns every step of the way. Mm. But that protest rally was hijacked. So, the press only showed you one side of things. So, a lot more needs to be said about that. Mm -hmm. I'm not defending it. Sure. But it wasn't quite as the press. Remember, the press in America, you you can see even the BBC for whom I used to work, the BBC is somewhat biased, but say the New York Times and the Guardian in England, they are incredibly biased. And they just don't cover what they don't like. And you can Mm -hmm. see now with the current president showing signs of dementia, Mm -hmm. bungling things all over the place. The press switches focus and pretends it's not happening. Mm -hmm. So we've got to critique the press and make sure our own um, digests of keeping up with things are true. We we want to eat well, but we want to read and watch well too.
1: Right, right. And I guess what I'm um, trying to articulate, this is very helpful, sincerely, I find that there's a need for me to hold a humble position in these things. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I don't want to assimilate. So exactly what you've said, I don't want to um, uh, compromise in my convictions around who Jesus is to get a place at the table so that I'm not attacked or whatever by uh, maybe a radical liberal agenda, whatever that means. And even how that translates in an African context, you know, like not everything is through an American lens, but just what that would mean. But then On the other hand, I am aware that I have blind spots and that I myself am a a sinner in need of salvation, you know, and that I have participated in and been a part of some of the injustices that the world now experiences. And I'm just wondering what it means to exactly what you say, not be on the back foot all the time, not always live defensively, but also to do so in a way that um, uh, facilitates dialogue opens up space for for common journey, these kinds of things.
0: But you can't generalize here. It might be different. You're talking to a friend or you're, say, addressing a university meeting or you're writing an op-ed piece for the whole of South Africa. It'd be somewhat different. Right. In other words, if I'm writing to the whole of America, for example, I, I would think of the American future and address that very clearly. That's different from, say, a very local thing where maybe – you know, truth is at stake or justice at stake. So we can't generalize in those ways, but we've got to get Christians with holy boldness Mm -hmm. and our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then to move out that way, because the gospel, the scriptures as a whole are truly the answer to the world's problems. Now we've talked about globalization, you know, China now is incredibly threatening as a totalitarian power. And they look down the line at singularity, transhumanism, not transgenderism, transhumanism. We've got a, Christians in that debate mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. fundamental mm-hmm. things about humanity are at stake. You know, at the moment, transgenderism, you know, people saying, I feel dysphoria. I'm a man in a woman's body or the reverse. But we move towards transhumanism and they're saying I'm a human in a body at all, and that's the problem, and I need to be more technological. So we're in an incredible world, but whatever the question is, we have the answers in the Lord, in the Scriptures, in Jesus, in the Gospel, and it's time for Christians to have courage and confidence and speak up and stand out. Wonderful. Wonderful.
1: Thank you. Oz. This has been very okay. helpful. Judy, do you have any, uh, final thoughts? I have a question from a listener, uh, that I thought we would end with, but before we go, there's anything you wanted to say?
2: No, I have no final thoughts. Um, I'd love to hear this question. So, we'll shoot.
1: Okay. So this is for you, Oz. This comes from, uh, a friend of the podcast. His name is Andrew Sutton lives in America. He says this, um, okay. I haven't read this. It's this quite long. He says, I understand that standing in the present day may be the most powerful way to show the next generation how to stand as the wave of culture seems to grow. It starts with us. And currently our freedoms are vast in this country, but we do see the slow fade of some of those being removed. One being educational freedom and the content being taught within our school systems. So practically, what does it look like to train, equip and guard our children in the wave of present culture? and in the waves that may be on the horizon.
0: <laughs> Francis Schaefer, whom I used to know well, he would say, you know, that's a soup question, not a dessert question. In other words, ask it when you're sitting down at the beginning of the meal and you can hope to answer <laughs> it well, but not right at the end. Apologies, so that, yeah. That's a huge question. Right. Now, obviously, families are the heart of our challenge, but also our privilege. Because if we can bring up our children to know and love the Lord and work in his ways, that is the key to the next generation. But one part of that is keeping them ahead of the game. In other words, they go to a public school or they go to a secular university. You need to keep them ahead of the game. This is what you're going to face. You know, when my son was eight, we had a little game, Spot the Lie. And I gave him a quarter, 25 cents American, for every lie or non sequitur or irrational claim in a commercial or an ad. It didn't last long as he was getting too much. <laughs> but it meant he, he could read commercials. He wasn't taken in by, he wasn't duped. Fantastic. And in the same way, I'll never forget, he went to the University of Virginia. Now, two weeks after he... Uh, went there. He called me one night at midnight. I was asleep. He said, "Daddy, I was in an anthropology class and took on the professor of a relativism. What did you think of this argument?" And fortunately, we told him what he was about to face, and he faced it, and he was ready for it. And the challenges of university life confirmed and deepened his faith rather than shook it. So we got to give our children on all the best, but keep them ahead of the game. That's just one thing I'd say. Mm. Finish with this thought. Yes. The rabbis wonderfully say that if any project is longer than a single generation, you need history and you need schools. And they point out, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free after 430 years of slavery. Did he mention freedom? No. They're going to the promised land, their own land. Does he mention it? No. Three times he talks about children. The story we tell to our children is the story they will carry on and the key to identity and the key to continuity. So families and schools are incredibly important and passing it on is the key to freedom but more importantly, the key to faith.
1: Thank you, Oz. Any other thoughts from you, Judy? No,
2: nothing else from me. Oz, thank you so, so much for the wisdom that you have given us today. There's a lot to think about in Tuber, um, but it's been so helpful, I know, for me personally and I'm sure for many, many of our listeners too.
0: No, you're most welcome. What a privilege to be with you. I love the theme follower. I'm a follower too, so God bless all of you. Followers of our Lord all around the world. Thank Wonderful. you. Thank you, Oz.
1: And friends, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, uh, we're still new, still doing the things. So leave a review, uh, share, like, follow, do all the things. Uh, I think this is the kind of content that is helpful in our present um, time. And so mm-hmm. if you found it helpful, please share it with people. And like I say, the reviews on podcasts uh, platforms really, really help. Thank you, Oz, very much. Really, really grateful for your time
0: most welcome.
1: Thank you, Judy. And everybody else will uh, chat to you on the next episode.